Quello che emerge dalle prime proiezioni si possa dire che dagli italiani in queste elezioni politiche è arrivata una indicazione chiara e l'indicazione chiara è per un governo di centrodestra a guida Fratelli d'Italia. This week, a far-right party is taking power in Italy. And after Sunday's historic election, Italians could have their first female prime minister, Giorgia Meloni. She is the charismatic, socially conservative leader of the Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy. Perché il grande obiettivo che ci siamo sempre dati nella vita e che ci siamo dati come forza politica è stata quella di fare sì che gli italiani potessero essere nuovamente orgogliosi di essere italiani. Maloney has drawn comparisons to people like former President Donald Trump. And the Brothers of Italy has been compared to the party of the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. But there's a real chance that Maloney and her party might not stick around. That's what we heard from Chico Harlan, the Rome bureau chief for The Post. There has not been a Trump-like figure who has kept loyalties for very long. And even some of the Maloney voters we talked to yesterday weren't convinced that they would still be behind her in a year. So there's a degree of skepticism about her and about everybody that I think needs to be sort of understood as underpinning everything. But even as people across Europe don't expect Maloney to be a permanent political fixture, they are wondering, what does it mean that Italians backed the far right? And what message is that sending to nationalist parties across the continent? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 27th. Today, understanding the rise of Georgia Maloney in Italy and why some European leaders are getting worried. How shocking is this for Italians? So it, there is a little bit of, of a duality to this in that everybody acknowledges that this is a benchmark all the foreign press is is mentioning Mussolini in the very first paragraph or second paragraphs of their stories. Mm -hmm. And Italians are too, but they've kind of internalized these parties long ago, these descendants of post-fascist movements as being mainstream. And these parties have done, have been savvy at tacking towards the center a bit and at distancing themselves from, from fascism. And also, it's critical to mention that history matters here. Italy never had that sort of clean break with its wartime identity that Germany did. And many of the people that were leading Italy during the fascist period continued to hold relevant posts into the late 1940s, 1950s. Hmm. And some of the acceptance of what happened bled a little bit into, into the country's post-war history. Chico, you described this party as post-fascist. And I think a lot of Americans like don't aren't familiar with that term or don't really know what that means. So tell me more about what you mean about this party being a, a post-fascist party and, and what are its policies? What does it stand for? Why is it so far to the right? You know, they, this party, Fratelli d'Italia, does not like to be linked to fascism. So when people say post-fascist, that is generally coming from their opponents mm -hmm. in Italy and, and elsewhere, um, people who want to connect them to this. But they are on the genetic tree of parties that have delineated from the first ones started by Mussolini supporters after mm -hmm. the war. In the 20 years that 
that he ruled the country, he increasingly quelched dissent. He created racial laws against Jews and against African inhabitants of this quasi-colonial empire that led to the direct persecution of people in those groups. And he allied with Hitler and basically dragged Italy into a war that then turned into a civil war and left the country in ruin, in disarray, economically leveled, and needing to rebuild after the collapse of this ideology that had been the only kind of ideology that was permitted for a generation. And so if you draw a line, you know, what you have to acknowledge is that one party replacing the other generation over generation, they did moderate, they did change. But what what makes them far right? I mean, I think there's a pretty clear example to that. A a big part of their their platform is based on culture war issues, opposition Mm. to what they call the woke left, the the LGBT lobby, uh, the right for gay couples to adopt a very, very, I would say, overt uh, effort to suggest that immigrants who come often risking their own lives are a danger to society in a way that kind of overblows the situation. And I think there is just a level of, of nationalism that is baked into their agenda that inherently creates a little bit of agitation that you see some parties using across Europe and beyond to their own benefit. So what are the policies that this party will start putting in place now that they're in power? There's a huge question about what they say they want to do and what will actually happen. I think it's it's important here to mention that Italy is a hard country to govern. It is a place where people's loyalties really zigzag fast and where the average government has lasted about 13 to 14 months since World War II. So it's hard for people to enact the things that they say they're interested in. And then there's the the other caveat that a lot of the things that this party had advocated for in the past, the more extreme positions regarding Europe, you know, to having Italy leave, leave the Eurozone, that's been long off the table. So what will they actually do? I think one area where they can quickly make a lot of hay is with migration. That's been a kind of underlooked aspect recently because it just has lost currency for voters. Europe, as you might remember, had this huge influx of people coming from Syria and Afghanistan seven, eight years ago. Europe is again debating who should look after refugees and migrants who have risked their lives to escape war and violence in their own countries. More than 500 are stuck on ships in the Mediterranean Sea with nowhere to go. And and as that receded, it kind of receded as a political issue too. But on the Italian right, there's still a thirst to see Italy take a more aggressive stance at cracking down on undocumented migrants crossing the Mediterranean. And a government has a lot of leeway to do that without drawing the wrath of Europe. They have said also that they want to show their credentials as responsible stewards of the country. And I think there in Brussels, there's some doubt about whether a party that has the extreme past of Fratelli d'Italia can, can do that. But Maloney, over the last couple of months, as she saw that this job was, was in reach for her, truly was making the case to as many people as would listen that, look, you can depend on us to maintain our alliances with the U.S. We're going to be hard on, on Russia. We're going to back Ukraine. We're not going to upend the norms here. 
So on foreign policy, I think most people expect this government to be more or less a continuation of what Italy has been. And then there's the last part, which is civil rights. People who are you know, in minority groups in Italy are worried about this government. Foreign-born people, people who are LGBT, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're a, a gay couple that wants to adopt a child, this is not an easy government to be seeing coming to power here. Yeah, And that that is an area where Maloney is very, very much a clear, a true believer in what she talks about. Hmm. Um, she has not made, on, on let's say, like the social issues, she has not really made any attempt to, to push to the center. So, so let's talk a little bit more about Georgia Maloney and who she is. I mean, where did she come from and, and how did she make her way up in the government and, and to this moment where she is poised to become the country's next prime minister? She's, she's really fascinating. She began her political career as a teenager and was a part of the, the youth movement of one of these post-fascist parties. And she's had a career that I think in a short telling has kind of flitted between the mainstream and the fringes. At one point, she was part of a center-right government. She was, the, I believe, the youngest minister in Italian history. And then when she was in her 30s, she became the leader of this of this new party that was kind of reestablishing itself as an inheritor of these earlier post-fascist parties. The party was born with uh, this tricolor flame logo that immediately harkened back to this earlier, very, very truly post-fascist party. And it had a farther right agenda than than other parties that, that she'd been affiliated with. And so she became the face of this, and she was chosen by by many of the men around her, specifically because she was this sort of untainted and, and unfamiliar face. Italy is very, very mm-hmm. male-dominated politically, and it's exceedingly rare, even though Italy has zillions of parties, including many that people have never heard of. They're all practically run by men. Mm-hmm. And so she was, she, you know, it bears talking about just how novel she is. It is a country where women where women lag behind by European standards, and in the political arena, it's even more so. And so, what what is it about her that kind of broke through that? I mean, why she clearly has a, a there's something about her that really connects to a lot of Italian voters. If you see her talk, I think you'll understand it. Um, mm. She doesn't play the greatest hits of a politician who's trying to be authentic. She is genuinely, when she speaks, she can be surprising. She can be funny. She can be really wry. She can imitate people. And she does it with this sort of crass, uh, always joking way that really plays to a sensibility for certain Italians. She has a a fairly rough Roman accent. She talks fast. And it's kind of like this elbow in the side, talking at the bar manner. If she says something outrageous, people are like, ah, that's just her. And when she says something serious, she really works her voice up. She really can't believe it. It's like, can you believe how crazy this country is? Can you believe how stupid we are for being, you know, for this bureaucracy? She was in opposition for for the longest time. And while she was doing that, she was firming up ties with parties across Europe that are similar mindset and with the Republican Party in the U.S., and a few days after the, the war had started, she went to Orlando to speak at the, the CPAC conference. I brought them from home, you know. 
<laughs> dear friends of CPAC, dear American conservatives. And if you listen to what she talked about there, I think you really get at kind of the, a thesis or at the heart of but one of her core beliefs, which is just that. We live in a time in which everything we stand for is under attack. Our individual freedom is under attack. Our rights are under attack. The sovereignty of our nation is under attack. The prosperity and well-being of our families is under attack. The education of our children is under attack. In front of this, people understand that in this age, the only way of being rebels is to preserve what we are. The only way of being rebels is to be conservatives. This sort of force that she says is in America and, and now in Italy, too, of the arrogant left, the mainstream media, forcing people to change what they really think. That's I mean, Chico, you know what I'm going to say, right? Like, she sounds kind of like Trump. She's more she's definitely more disciplined than Trump. Hmm. I mean, who who isn't? Um, and and her relationship with the truth is closer. It's not perfect, but it would be it's harder to say that she's completely making stuff out of the dark. She can be she can pull things to to stretch her narrative, mm. but she's definitely on firmer ground with with using facts than Trump is. Mm-hmm. So, so Chico, you spoke with Maloney earlier this month and interviewed her. C- can you talk a little bit about that interview and and your experience of talking to her and some of the things that she said in, in your conversation? Well, we were we wanted to hear her talk about the Republican Party in the U.S., which which she kind of always lauds, but we didn't quite understand what parts of it she connected with. And, and what did she say? Eh, it was a non-answer. It was a complete non-answer. Um, you know, and sometimes I'll be honest, she did go, she did start to repeat parts of speeches on the on the campaign trail. Perché ci ritroveremo al governo dell'Italia in una forse delle situazioni più complesse in assoluto. Intanto per l'eredità di quello che la sinistra ha lasciato in questi ultimi dieci anni di governo. To me, I don't think that anything we asked revealed so much, but the fact that she wanted to talk with the Washington Post was I think a signal in itself in that, you know, you talk, you talk to the post, you talk to international media outlets if you want to, to reach a certain audience to tell people that, that I'm okay, you know, I know what I'm doing. Ma guardi, io considero la realtà di Fratelli d'Italia una realtà molto complessa. Come è la complessa la realtà del Partito Repubblicano? She talked about how Italy will be passing a budget law, which sounds boring, but if Italy starts spending too much money, international markets will get freaked out and Italy will have this much feared, much talked about economic crisis that, that ensnares all of Europe. She said, I'm not, I'm not somebody who you should be afraid of. So she, she was making the point to us directly that she could be a responsible leader of Italy, not somebody who was going to take the country on some authoritarian turn. After the break, the staying power of the far right in Italy, and the impact it could have on the rest of Europe. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. 
Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So just to be clear, at this point, the election has not officially been called yet. Maloney has not been chosen to lead the new government. But if all goes according to predictions, you know, she will be the next prime minister. How will that impact the rest of Europe and European politics? It's always complicated with parliamentary systems. So what now will happen is that parliament will get seated and then the prime minister will get chosen because Maloney's coalition has secured a majority. And because her party is the number one top vote getter within that group by far, the odds that she becomes prime minister are maybe not 100%, but extraordinarily high. But technically, it's not guaranteed. And voters don't vote for her. Voters don't vote for the prime minister. That could that whole process could take a month or even a month and a half before oh, wow. she becomes prime minister. So it will not it will not be swift. There will be plenty of time to talk about her uh, for Italians and think about what this means. So what is the effect that this is all going to have on the rest of Europe? I mean, and, and how is Europe viewing this? I mean, seeing this person who is pretty far to the right becoming the, you know, soon to become expected to become the prime minister of, of Italy. I think there's a huge range of opinions on what this means or what this could mean and how to interpret it. Because there are some people who say, oh, look, you know, on paper, Maloney's not so different than Viktor Orban. And look what he look how he's transformed Hungary into this quasi autocratic state with very little media freedom, with universities that have gotten shut down, with a, a significant rollback on rights for gays, you know, mm-hmm. for people, you know, who who don't fit the norms with gender, with with traditional families, all the things we've already talked about. And he he has succeeded in altering Hungary in fundamental ways. And he has antagonized Europe with zeal and led to numerous fights between him and Brussels. And there is, I think, some sense that Maloney could trigger a portion of those similar tensions. But it should be also mentioned that she is showing more interest in being a institutional player than Orban, and that Italy is just a harder country for one person to control. There won't be a media takeover in Italy. And, and it's it's hard to pass legislation in Italy. There's so many parties in Italy. She'll be with a coalition that where the, the odds for rivalry within the coalition are extraordinarily high. There are already policy divisions within, within her coalition. And uh, we've seen from the past that governments that start out, you know, holding hands can start to be sticking knives in each other's backs in a matter of months. So... I think that all of those things, for people who really do understand Italian politics, part of the reason they're not as concerned is just because it's unclear whether she'll still have the grounds to do anything in 400 days. Mm -hmm. But but at the same time, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, that logistically it is very difficult to govern Italy effectively, that there's a world where many of Maloney's policies don't actually get put into place. But I also think that there's a reaction to this of more what it represents, what it means that so many Italians voted in favor of a far-right government. And you mentioned Hungary, other governments that have had um, elections recently in Europe. I mean, that there is the sense that maybe we are seeing, uh, you know, a moment where where far-right governments are gaining power. 
Right. So there is, if you start to connect the dots, there are some signs to suggest that momentum has returned for nationalist parties, far-right parties. This comes on the heel of, of a group of right-wing parties that includes one with, with neo-fascist ties coming to power in Sweden. And for Maloney, it's a bit of this, like, harnessing social issues, uh, the backlash against the, the left, and presenting herself in, in a, I would say, like a Trump-like kind of way on immigration. On just like the, this sort of presenting, presenting as this sort of normal talking person who is different than the other members of the political class. And she, she succeeded in convincing a significant number of Italian voters that she was more coherent than the other politicians around her. So that's, that, is, that is a marker that the far right is making grounds. But the other, there are a few other things to mention here. There are headwinds against her in Europe. The biggest question I think for Europeans is whether anything that happens in Italy might increase the odds that Marine Le Pen eventually becomes Fran France's president. And just She's to be made, clear, Marine Le Pen is the conservative uh, politician in France that people think could um, bring down current president Emmanuel Macron. Exactly. And... Look, Italy is kind of the number three power in, in the European Union. But Maloney will be lonely when she's sitting at the table with these other EU leaders. Hmm. They don't want her to necessarily succeed outright. If Maloney does well, that does open the door, theoretically, for other parties that have potentially been seen as too far, right, too extreme, the ruin of the country. She could use her experience here if it goes well to undo some concerns that have potentially held back other parties. But Italy might also prevail to just counteract myself. It might also prevail as a country that, that is a bit of a, of a outlier. It wasn't a runaway victory. And it doesn't mean that the right has a hold on the country. It just means that they have the right to govern right now. So Really, to get a feel for how much is possible here is hard. But I, I do think you can say that there are some quirks that allow this to happen that suggest that the leeway that this government has is not infinite. They will have to have some, some quick successes. Otherwise, the the same speed with which Maloney came to power and became popular, she could lose it. Chico, thank you so much for explaining this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Chico Harlan is the Rome Bureau Chief for The Post. This episode was produced by Sabi Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky and edited by Rena Flores. We are always looking to find new listeners. So if you found this story helped you understand a little more about the world, we would love if you shared this episode of Post Reports with a family member or friend. And thank you so much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.